following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I want to invite today's guest up today. This is Danielle Ponder from uh, Danielle Ponder and the Tomorrow People, and she is fantastic. And uh, I was here for soundcheck. Buckle up. Good to go. Danielle, thank you for being thank here. You so thank much. you so much. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Good. I think we'll get right into the music. Um, we're gonna, we'll start with this song called Three Word Revolution. And the three word revolution is I love myself. If you love yourself, make some noise. All right. So it goes like this. I love myself. I love myself. 
about survival. I specifically wrote it um, in dedication to the black community and our ability to survive and to give us some hope that um, as long as we are still living and breathing, we can rise up, we can um, fight against those in power that hope to oppress our community. Um, so it ain't over. It ain't over. All right. So. We live. 
doing for Daniel Pondering. Thank you so much. Thank you. Would you welcome Daniel Ponder one more time, please? Thank you so much. Okay, this next song is called Criminal Eyes, and I, I won't talk about it now because I think we'll probably get into it afterward. So. But there is some call and response at the end, which is why I saved it to the last song because I, want, I wanted you to warm yourself up. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Free! 
this amazing band. What a gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. My goodness. Well, um, you go ahead and have a seat. One thing that you know clearly about Danielle Ponder now is that she is a musician. (laughs) But what you might not know is that Danielle Ponder is also an attorney. And uh, (laughs) the artisan woo for attorneys. I didn't know that was going to (laughs) happen. So, um, uh, specifically, a public defender. And um, so she graciously agreed not only to come here and perform music for us, but to come here and speak with us about what she sees in the criminal justice system in our city, in our county, in our state. And I think that she has an insight that is going to be uh, very eye-opening for us to hear. So uh, we're going to do a little Q&A. Would you like to sit or stand? It's up to you. You can. All right. You can bring that right out. So... I thought we'd start with this. I'm going to poll our congregation. Now you see the demographic makeup of our congregation. Um, there's a lot of people who ride bicycles in this congregation. <laughs> Those two sentences were not meant to be connected to each other, but sure, fine. Um, <laughs> what I want to do is ask the congregation, how many of you have ever been stopped by a police officer on your bicycle because you did not have a bell on the handlebars? Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Uh, I'm not so good at math, but do I see zero hands? I think that was zero, yeah. Okay. Um, now, would you please tell us what you know about people being stopped for not having a bell on their bicycle? I mean, I think I'm so happy you asked that question, powerful demonstration. Um, in my line of work, I would say um, often we see young black men who are brought into the court system Um, And the initial stop was because they did not have a bell on their bike. Um, So this is a common practice. And it's interesting because I put this on Facebook and all my white friends were like, what? This is happening? Oh, my God. And my black friends were like, oh, my God, that happened to my son. And they took him down there. And then just to see the distinction was just really, it was alarming. Um, But this is a, you know, a way to racially profile um, communities of color Um, And I I bring up the biking thing because I think a lot of white people can relate to riding bikes. (laughs) Well, I should say a lot of us hipster liberals, which I include myself in that. Um, But we can't relate to the stopping, you know, being stopped, you know, just riding our bike. Yeah. um, Now, what about something that most people would probably define as a little bit more serious? Um, I want to talk a little bit about drug offenses. Um, can you can you describe what kind of imbalance, if any, you see in the system when it comes to let's call it minor drug offenses between white uh, perpetrators and people of color? I mean, one of the biggest difference between white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. I mean, our neighborhoods are segregated. We all know that. Um, 
is that in white communities, there's not aggressive policing tactics. That is literally what they call it. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. It's really terrorizing <laughs> communities um, because you can go to Pittsburgh, you know, Pittsburgh, uh, like that area where there's Starbucks and there's stores, and you don't see police just, you know, surveying that area and going up to people and what do you, you know, do you have a bell on your bike? Was that in your pocket? That doesn't happen, right? So if you live on Conkey Avenue or, you know, Avenue A through D, um, that does happen. So in regards to drugs, what we see is people who are smoking marijuana in the hood get charged with B misdemeanors because it is a crime if you're smoking marijuana um, and it's burning in public. Um, so I live on Oxford, which is off of Park Avenue, and I could see, you know, I could smell marijuana, and I know there's no cops that are going to stop anyone for that. In all of my time in city court, I've never had a white client who was stopped with smoking, for, uh, smoking marijuana. The demographic, if I was to pull the stats, I would say it's probably 100% black boys between 16 and probably 25 who are charged with that offense. And that's because there's two different styles of policing. Um, one policing, which is to look for stuff, um, and one is to come when we're called, mm. which is the policing that happens in, in you know, the East Ave, Park Ave area. Um, and so when you're looking for things, you'll find things. Um, and so that's what we're seeing, or also being charged with uh, violations of having marijuana on your person, which often you know, starts, they find the marijuana because of an illegal stop, right? Um, an illegal search. Um, going into kids' pockets, and these kids don't know, like, they have no clue. Most adults don't know. Um, but we're talking about 16, 17-year-old kids being charged with crimes, violations for something that half of Colorado is enjoying and probably high <laughs> right now. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, and and uh, we know, and I imagine you're familiar with with the research on this, that uh, black men between 16 and, what did you say, 20, 21, 25, do not use drugs at a higher rate than white men right. of the same age. We know that they're using at equal, uh, equal rates as their white counterparts, but are arrested more than yeah. their white counterparts. I mean... The, the racism within the criminal justice system, I always say, is not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of facts. Mm. Um, uh, if you have not read Michelle Alexander, The New Ch Jim Crow, oh, look at you. You are just so on point. <laughs> you should read that book. I mean, you could read different research studies on criminal justice system, and we know that the system is disproportionately imprisoning, uh, incarcerating, uh, arresting, um, stopping black boys. Um, and there's a history to that piece, um, which is outlined in the new Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, uh, that book was very, very eye-opening for me. Um, but I, I think it wouldn't have been as eye-opening if, if I hadn't started to broaden my relational circles a little bit too and actually talk to people of color who say, yeah, that's, that's actually the truth. It was like, it's kind of like what you saw when you put that thing on Facebook about the, the bells and things. And I am the son and the nephew and the brother-in-law of police officers. And, so, and I grew up in a, in a rural, rural town in Maine. And so my contact with police was like 
I think I got pulled over once when I was coming home late, you know, too, too late with my girlfriend. And, and the guy saw my name on a license and was like, come on. Right? Because it's a small town and he knew my dad. And so my default position was always to trust uh, the police to be doing the right thing at all times. And so it, it took me, it took some, the gears had to like stop going in one direction and start going the other direction before I could even get my head around this. Um, and uh, again, I, I always stress relationships because for me, knowing, like actual people who I know and trust looking me in the eye and saying, Scott, this is what happened. It's not just something that somebody made up to, you know, to sell t-shirts or to get on the news or whatever, whatever crazy reason somebody would do that anyway. Um, so thank you for sharing that part of the perspective with us. Um, and you've touched a little bit on what happens after people are brought in, but I want to I talk a little bit more about that transition from uh, street policing into the court systems. And um, one thing that if you could uh, go a little bit into is uh, plea bargaining, specifically the idea of plea bargaining. How does that, tell us what it is, for people to know what a plea bargain is, and then how does that affect the way people um, end up going through the system, and then what happens to them after? Okay, so a plea bargain is basically if you are charged with a certain crime, instead of going to trial, the district attorney and your attorney can sit down, and pretty much it's a deal, like negotiate a deal um, for you to plead to maybe a lesser offense, and get a certain amount of time, get less time than what that offense can carry. I am conflicted about plea bargaining. Mm-hmm. And actually, they were, they were talking about it on NPR the other day. And part of me, um, so here's, here's, the, the, here's, I think, the bigger issue, right, is that when people are in custody, they are more, they're more likely to take a plea even if they did not commit the crime. Right. The issue is bail, I think, because we set ridiculous bail on people who can't even afford to pay their rent, okay? So the whole purpose of bail is to have some collateral. It's for me to give you something, and then you hold this and say, if you don't come to court, I'm keeping this money. But what's happening is people don't have anything to give. So a judge will set $500 bail on someone who's homeless, if he had $500 just sitting in the savings account, he probably wouldn't be homeless. Mm. Um, so we will see even ag- people who are charged with aggressive panhandling, which is literally begging for money, judges will find them. And it's completely asinine. So when a person has bail set on them, they want to get out of custody, right? They can't pay. So they will often take a plea to um, the crime, and maybe they'll get time served or something like that because they want to get out. So they're not making a decision based on whether they did the crime or not. They're making a decision because they want to get out of jail. Now, the reason I say I com- I'm conflicted about um, uh, plea bargaining is because I think sometimes it's very good. Because, one, <laughs> believe it or not, many of my clients have committed the crime. <laughs> <laughs> and it's provable. And I'm like, brother, if you don't take this plea deal. Um, (laughs) And then there are times, the saddest times for me, is when I have to explain to my client that you're going to get six white people from Monroe County, because most of our juries are white, who are not going to get this. They're not going to get it. 
So if you're being charged a violation, a violation level offense, you're being offered a violation level offense, and you're charged with a misdemeanor, instead of risking going to trial and getting up to a year in jail, as opposed to doing community service, I would take the community service. But I hate that I have to say to them, you don't have a jury of your peers. Mm. So I had a client last year who was in his place of business. Officer came in and says, who's parked um, outside of the, the, there was like parking lanes. Who's parked in the wrong lane or like in between two lanes? And my client, (laughs) he's, he's a special person, which people are. He's like, what does it matter? It's my business. So he goes off on the cop. When you go off on a cop in the hood, you get arrested. That's just what happens. So he tries to arrest my client, right? And so my client starts pulling away from him. He's like, I'm calling Adam McFadden. I'm calling this person, that person. So it's on video, and he's saying to me, you know, I did not resist arrest um, because, you know, I, I was making a phone call, and so I'm looking at this video. My client's like six, seven. The cop's like five, two. Really short cop. He's a terrible officer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's very well known in the hood. And maybe, I don't know, he might be one of your Facebook friends. But um, <laughs> so he, um, so anyway, long story short, what I had to think about is how will six white people from Parrington, Parma, whatever, see this video? Will they see this aggressive black male pushing, pulling away from this innocent Oompa Loompa officer? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, probably. And so I had to explain to him, I'm like, we can go to trial all day. But they don't understand our communities. They're not, they don't understand our relationship with police officers. They, officers. they don't understand why you were so frustrated when he was asking you those questions. What they're going to see is you being loud and big and scary and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he ended up taking a plea to a disorderly conduct and receiving like 15 hours of community service. But it was still painful yeah. to have to um, do that. Wow. Oh my God. I have like 100 follow up questions right now. <laughs> uh, let me try to think of it. Yeah. So I imagine what was behind that, that physical struggle was that this was not this person's only frustrating interaction with police officers. Mm-hmm. And some of what we talked about earlier with the bike bells and all kinds of other things. Um, the, can, you, can you talk a little bit more about how much and what type of frustration you see, uh, particularly in the black community, and their relationship with the police in their neighborhoods uh, as compared to, you know, you kind of hinted earlier, we, you know, I probably only call the police if I need them to come and help me. Mm-hmm. And how does that... How does that affect trust and, and all of the other things? Like, would, would somebody not call the police if they were in trouble? Those kind of things. I mean, I remember talking to one of my white friends about his um, relationship with officers, and he was saying, yeah, I've always trusted them. And I was just like, what? Like, really? Like, we both could not understand each other's um, feeling towards officers. He was completely didn't get mine, and I did not understand his at all. And that's because of this, you know, this aggressive policing, which also does officers a disservice, right? Because if you want to find out who killed someone, you can't go to Jerome because you just stopped him for absolutely no reason. Or your partner just beat the crap out of his brother. 
So he's not going to tell you anything. So you're coming in our communities as an occupying force, mm-hmm. as not someone we want to work with. And that's troubling because then when there are serious crimes, you, no one wants to talk to you because yeah. people don't like you. And that's because you just stopped me for a bag of weed, which was, you know, stupid. Yeah. Or um, I saw a kid being stopped. I was in, inside of a building looking outside. They had him take off his shoes, empty his pocket. This was before I was an attorney because I probably would have walked out there like, you can't do that. <laughs> um, but, and then they just let him go. They didn't find anything and they let him go. So if you talk to young black kids in the hood, they will tell you, I've been stopped by, I can't make it to the corner store, you know, without being stopped at least once a week by officers or approached. And so it becomes an occupying force. It becomes a form of terrorizing a community. So people don't trust you. And people have seen people get set up Mm. by officers. I've had four brothers and three of them, I've seen them come home beaten up by police officers. Um, so why should I respect them? Why should I communicate with them when they need help? And this is what they need. They need the community to respect them. They need help when they're trying to solve, you know, serious crimes. So officers who are engaging in illegal practices, um, are really doing a disservice to officers who, uh, really want to help a community. Mm. Um, I don't even remember what your question was. No, that's was. good. That's, that's good. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> the answers are more important than the questions in this case. Um, can you tell uh, us what impact on, a, on uh, future flourishing in the community it has if you've, if you've got a record? If somebody gets, goes through the system, maybe they take a, maybe even it's a plea, but they still now they have a, a conviction on their record. What, what starts to happen to people, particularly with felony convictions? I mean, with felony convictions, it can affect everything from your housing, um, getting student loans, which is the dumbest thing to me. Like, don't we want people with felony convictions to go to school? Like, that would be like the first thing we would want. Um, Getting student loans, even with a low-level marijuana conviction, a UPM, unlawful possession of marijuana, that could affect your ability to get student loans. Um, Obviously, employment, even though the city of Rochester did pass an ordinance that you can't ask if a person has felony convictions. But that only applies to the city. And we know most jobs are not in the city. Most people are going, um, you know, going to the, the suburbs, like working at malls and different places like that for employment. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the effects. But also when you, let's say you get charged with uh, one of the most frustrating offenses is uh, driving without a license, which could be a felony, which you can go to state prison for. Um, And people do go to state prison for. So let's say you get charged with a misdemeanor offense of driving without a license. And they look at your record. And in 1976, you had a terrible violent felony. They're probably not going to make you a good offer because in 1976, when this DA wasn't even born, born, you did something, right? So your, your record follows you everywhere you go, and there's no redemption in that. Um, Can people just vote different lawmakers in to change the laws at that point? I mean... <laughs> That's a leading question. <laughs> so, and so I'm not... I have to be honest that I don't do felonies, I do misdemeanors, so I'm not that well-versed on uh, voter disenfranchisement. 
which is the inability to vote because you have felony convictions. I'm not familiar with those law, the, the laws in New York State. Um, so you guys can go Google that. <laughs> you know. Excellent. But this, I do know that that happens across the country where you cannot vote. I, I feel like in New York State, there's a process to get your voting rights back after a felony conviction, but I'm not 100% mm, sure. Okay. Well, uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is protest. Now, in recent months and in the past few years, we have seen um, different types of protests. Very recently, we've seen two uh, two types of protests. We've seen um, active, vocal, physical protests in the streets here in Rochester, in my hometown of Portland, Maine. There was a pretty significant one not long ago. And then we've seen a very, very recently, a very quiet protest where Colin Kaepernick sat down during the, the playing of the national anthem. And what I have witnessed from um, many of my friends in the white community is that both of these forms of protest are utterly unacceptable. You cannot make noise, and you cannot be silent. And so could you please speak... And I, I don't want to be... T- um, what am I trying to say? I don't want to be glib about that. Right? Because I, I... Listen, I told you, my, my dad's a cop. He's a person who has had to be there, and, and he is at physical risk sometimes, or was, when he was on the, doing this kind of police work. During these protests, I understand that's a scary thing. There are people who have relatives who have served and died in the armed forces, and the, the disrespect for the anthem is significant. I understand. I'm not trying to be glib or say that people should just always like be quiet about this kind of thing. What I am trying to point out is that there's a, a double standard here. There's a, a um, I in the moment cannot think of a better way to say this, but damned if you do, damned if you don't, sort of reality um, when it comes to. A, a community's response to this type of injustice. And so for um, this group of people, can you kind of walk us through this and help us understand why, and again, I'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of millions of of people of color in our country, but um, what do you think is the proper role of protest, I guess is what I'm trying to ask, and can you frame it for us in a way that helps us understand it, because we maybe don't need it right now anyway. And um, that's that's if we're going to be kind of in our own communities, which I think we should not be, but I don't know. Protest. Talk about protest. I think, (laughs) okay, protest. I think protest is important. Um, No, I think protest should disrupt things. Um, I think the thing that bothers people about the silent protest and the, 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 the physical protest out in the middle of the street is they don't want to be bothered. I don't want to talk about this. Hmm. I don't care how you bring it to my attention, silently or loud. I just don't want to talk about this. I want to live my normal life as a white person, not having to engage in this dialogue. And here's an example. As a heterosexual woman, I never have to think about that. I mean, I often think about why am I still single, but (laughs) (laughs) I never have to think about my sexuality, right? I never have to worry if I'm holding someone's hand what someone is thinking about. So lately with the trans community, LGBT community, I've had to really think about this stuff. Mm. I could do two things. I could say, what is my role and how do I help? Or I could say, oh my God, I was so comfortable not thinking about this. You're pissing me off. You know what I mean? And so those people are just saying, I don't want to have to have these difficult conversations. Um, But I really do believe in civil disobedience. 
I think it's important. I think it's not enough to say, let's just all work together. I think you have to disrupt the status quo. You have to make some people late to work. You have to shut down some businesses. You have to close some things down. Because we, um, I think many people don't, you know, they don't see the rain until it's falling on their their front door. You know what I mean? Until they're getting wet. So there has to be some type of... um, protest to disturb the norm and disturb the status quo. Um, So I applaud the young people who protested. Um, I mean, that made the New York Times, right? Um, On East Avenue and wherever it was. And I also applaud the football player, Kaepernick, whose name I can't really pronounce. But um, yeah, I, I think things are shifting and we... I think people are trying to hold on to what they feel is their superiority. Um, and whenever it feels like it's being threatened, which is completely ego, and this is what I said to a group a couple weeks ago, if we take race out of this, right, this is completely your ego. Your ego saying, I want to feel better than someone else. I don't want to lose my superior, superiority. I feel threatened. And when we let go of that, it helps us to be fully human, Mm. right? Because you get to be a human being. You don't get to be caught up and socialized into whiteness, which is really, um, I don't know how to say this, but we really need to focus on what white people have been taught and how much of a disservice it does to you as a human being. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, to be able... So just like we can say women have been taught to wear makeup, to do this, to do that, and a lot of women, we liberate ourselves in this, like, you know what, this is my choice. If you're walking down the street and you see a young black kid on the other side and you're, you're scared and you walk to the other side, someone has controlled your thinking. Mm. Someone has told you what that meant. What does a young black boy in a hoodie mean? Someone else told you that. So you're not even being truly who you are. You are being a collection of things you've seen in the media, things you've heard on the radio, and that should piss you off, even if you don't care about me as a black person. You should be upset because you have been socialized to think something, and you should want to liberate yourself. You should want to be free from that type of thinking, and that's the work that I think white people have to constantly do, Um, and if they need to... And to tell themselves that. I want to be free from racism because it's a sickness. Mm. I want to be free from white supremacy and white superiority because it separates me from my brother and sister. Um, and it's just, it's everyday work. And I think that's the, that's the way I like to talk about it because I'm into metaphysics and stuff. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.